Hey, Next on the T Nation, thanks for tuning into this very special segment of the show featuring Gary Player. Mr. Player is someone who's become very, very important to me in my life, and this is now the 10th year in a row I've had the privilege of spending some time with him. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. I can't thank you enough for tuning in. Enjoy this time with one of the true legends and one of the greatest players in the history of our game, Gary Player. Good afternoon, Mr. Player. Chris, how are you, my friend? I'm very good, Mr. Player. How are you? I'm very fine. And I said to Debbie that the questions you had here were the best presented to me by anybody in years. Honestly, it is just stuff that is just uh, relevant and, you know, stuff that uh, I want to speak about. Well, that's good news. I appreciate that very much. Okay. All right, let's get started. So, Mr. Player, at age 87, I know you're still out there playing golf almost every day. I saw a video last year with you and Mr. Nicholas. You're asking him how far your backswing was going back. Talk about your drive to continue to want to get better. Well, first of all, I uh, I love the game of golf so much. I love the people that I meet. And I've traveled, as you know, more miles than any human being that's ever lived. And I love to travel and learn about other people's cultures and opinions without me thinking that mine is always 100% right. So it's been an epic journey for me. And I've beaten my age now 3,071 times in a row. Wow. And so now falling off the horse on the beach in Cape Town, we're doing a TV show for America, and I was riding a horse on the white beach and it was great, but then I was coming back home and I fell off and I had eight stitches in my hand and I haven't played for 35 days now. It's driving me crazy, but I will be ready at Augusta uh, when I tee off, uh, you know, the morning opening the tournament, which I'm looking forward to. Mr. Blair, I want to talk about the power of the mind. And I'm curious, do you actively train your mind so you can stay sharp and improve your mental approach to the game still? Very much so. And, you know, you've got to understand that most people at my age, a great number of people are inflicted with this terrible disease called dementia. And uh, this is happening, obviously, through many reasons. But, uh, you know, I have my own theories about things about health. I think the most important thing, if you want to live a long time and be active, is undereat. I think you only need about one and a half meals a day. But I'm on two meals a day trying to cut down to one and a half. There are many places in the world where they fast for 250 days a year and live to old ages. If you go to India and you see how long people live eating one meal a day, we overeat this great country, the greatest country the world has ever known, the United States of America. 80% of people are obese. More people are dying of obesity than all the world's wars put together. Why we can't get this put through to the schools, but I'm very unimpressed with the educational systems of your schools in America when I compare ours in South Africa to you. We in South Africa are a small country, but we're better educated, better dressed, better disciplined, and more knowledge about what's going on in the world. So... All I can say to people, if you want to live a long time, you want to be active, you want your mind to be active, you've got to meditate, you've got to pray, you've got to undereat, you've got to laugh a lot. I laugh all day long. I tease all my friends. You've got to have unmeasured love in your heart. 
You've got to exercise. These are the things. Living a long time and having energy and keeping your mind and improving it is not luck. Luck is the residue of design. You've got to work at it all the time. I work at these things every day of my life. You mentioned travel a minute ago, and traveling today is so much easier than it was when you were first getting out on tour back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. How did you keep your mind and your body sharp through all the traveling you did? Well, by implementing these things that I've told you now, and a lot of deep breathing with fresh air and a lot of exercise and sleeping well. I'm a champion sleeper. I can, I can go to sleep any time of the day, anywhere within five minutes. Now, that's a blessing. But that comes from having an active body, keeping your body moving. But I just went in the last two months, five countries in 12 days for Rolex. Then I flew to the United States from South Africa to play in the father-son tournament. Then I went back to South Africa. Then I went to Australia. And then I came here. Now, just between South Africa, Australia, and the U.S., there's a, I had a 25-hour time change. So if you keep fit and if you do these things I'm telling you about, it helps you to combat the time change. But remember, when we first flew over here, my wife and I, it took 40 hours with Pan American. Doesn't exist anymore, that airline. 40 hours, stopping four times, five and six children, Man, did I have a wife that was prepared to make sacrifices. No woman would stay married to me today, always saying goodbye, having to travel with six children. My goodness me, I miss her so much. Today was her birthday. Today was her birthday. And I was coming home from the dentist this morning. It's amazing how these things happen. And we used to have a little breakfast at a little old cheap diner here. And my car went straight to that diner without me even thinking about it, reminding me that we went there together. So, you know, it's kind of strange, isn't it? The messages you get. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Mr. Play, you've been saying for decades that they needed to roll the golf ball back. Now the USGA and the RNA are endorsing the idea. Do you think the PGA Tour is going to adopt that model local rule? Well, if the PGA do not adopt that, then I'll be so upset. Not that my opinion means all that much, but they've got to. You see, Chris, it's not a case of just the ball. What people must understand, you've got a lot of city slickers that are involved in certain issues. We're running out of water, Chris. Only go to Nevada, go to Arizona, go to South Africa, go to Australia. And just see how we're running out of water, populations growing. That's number one. I'm a rancher, and I can tell you, when you use fertilizer consistently, you get a layer of poison under the grass. And so now if you're making, you've got people hitting the ball, 400, the other day I watched a man hit the ball, 455 yards. And I'm telling people they're going to hit it 500. We haven't had a big Man like LeBron James play golf. We've never had a big man play golf yet. Wait till they come. They'll hit it 500 yards. So now, if we're going to have to lengthen all the golf courses, more water, more fertilizer, more machinery, more labor, and we just can't, and ground, we're running out of ground. You can't take golf courses. You know, Augusta National were an exception, I was, and I was embarrassed. 
They said, is Augusta National going to make the course longer? I said, well, they cannot go into the streets. Well, they did. They bought the highways. <laughs> Can you imagine this? <laughs> and they've made it longer. So now the thing is, when I, I've always been known as a bit of a nut, but I like to try and have vision. I told him on BBC one day, they'll hit the ball 400 yards. The man said to me, I was talking hogwash. I said, a man, now that it's very common to hit at 400 yards. I told a man they'd win a major championship at the age of 50. Hogwash. Phil Mickelson did it. Now I'm saying a man of 60 will do it. Now they also don't believe me. And I'm telling you, they will hit the ball 500 yards if we don't make a change. What is that going to do, God? It's going to make it obsolete. It's going to be an absolute tragedy. So the PGA have to agree. And I must take my hat off to people that I respect so much, the RNA and the USGA. And we got a president of the US, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, United States Golf Association today who's got vision, the same as the RNA. So thank goodness we're doing it. Only I don't think 20 yards is enough. I think it's 30 yards because 30 yards is only a, is only a two-club difference. And that's going to make an improvement, but not to the ultimate anyway. You see, let's let's start off and get going first. Mr. Player, we're in season two now of Live Golf, something that nobody thought would ever happen. Do you think that that tour is going to have longevity? I've got no objection to players joining the Live Tour. A lot of them are joining the Live Tour because they really, they know in their hearts they're not really good enough to go out and win consistently on the regular tour. Take the money and run. It's like any businessman would do that. But what breaks my heart is to see it's a war now. And that I don't like that controversy and that atmosphere and ambience when I love the game so much and I think what the game has done for me. You know, a lot of the players that are being vociferous on the live tour. They mustn't forget that the PGA fulfilled their dream, and without their dream, they would have never got on the tour. So both sides today, we have a war. And what happens when you have a war? It's not unhealthy. But one day, somebody wins the war, and you come to a conclusion. I don't know what the conclusion is going to be, but let the live tour guys go and play on the tour, and let us have our tour. But you can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it. That's all I'm saying. Speaking of longevity, Mr. Player, you won majors over a span of 20 years. Mr. Nicholas won it over 25 years. Mr. Palmer was a great ambassador to the game, but only won majors over a short period of time, six years. Shouldn't longevity then be a factor when we're determining greatness? It's very interesting, Chris that you've come to that conclusion, and that is true. But we must remember that Arnold Palmer, my dear friend, almost my brother, was the most, uh, what's the word I could think, um, the people, he's the most charismatic golfer that probably ever lived. And what he did for the game was unbelievable. But it's interesting. Nicholas wins majors for 25 years. I win for 20. Palmer wins for a mere six. But the average man in the street thinks he won for 25. 
and we won for six. <laughs> and I don't blame them because they loved him so much and he did so much for the game. But it's quite interesting when they judge players. You know, I won more majors than Arnold on the regular tour, more majors on the senior tour, more tournaments in the world, more money on both tours, and they always vote him better than I am. But I understand that, and I'm never, never upset about it because I'm not an American, and Palmer is, and he was an icon, and I, if I had a vote, I'd also vote for Palmer. I loved him so much. In that same sort of vein, could we be seeing the dawning of a new era, big three in the game right now with Scotty Scheffler, Rory McIlroy, John Rahm? Those guys seem to be trading world number one back and forth every other week. Could these guys be the three that dominate the game over the next little bit? It certainly could happen. I wouldn't like to take a guess and say it will, but it certainly can happen. But I'll tell you this. You'll never have the big three of Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, and Jack Nicholas in the, in, the, in the sense that we were like brothers. We traveled around the world. We lived in each other's houses. They came to my ranch in South Africa. They went down the gold mines in South Africa. They helped us destroy apartheid. They were just the most wonderful people to grow up and be with. And we all were great ambassadors of this great country, the United States of America. We were ambassadors of golf around the globe. And you'll never find three people that live in each other's pockets and have respect for each other like we did. When Arnold Palmer and I had an argument at Bay Hill once, we sat down at the table. We were both crying. We loved each other so much and apologized for raising our tempers. So that was a, a wonderful time in golf. And we came to the fore when television was there. And we won over 350 tournaments and over 50 majors around the world. What a time. Something that I will cherish until the day I die. You mentioned apartheid. Early in your career, you had to deal with death threats because of your stance on apartheid. I believe even at Bell Reef, when you won the U.S. Open in 1965, it was tough for you. And the fact that you went through all of that resonates with Tiger Woods today. He has tons of admiration for you for having gone through that. Talk about what you had to deal with because of your political stance. Well, it was at the PGA in Dayton, Ohio in 1969. Now, think about this, Chris. I lost the tournament to Raymond Floyd by one shot. They threw telephone books in my back, on my backswing. They threw ice in my eyes. They charged me on the green, coming out of the galleries and tearing up the green. We had 30 policemen at least uh, stopping them and, and grabbing them. They threw balls between my legs when I had a, an important five-foot or ten-foot putt. They screamed on my backswing, but I still nearly won the tournament because I realized that my parents had taught me to have love and respect for everybody. And, you know, the greatest gift bestowed upon me ever in my life is the Medal of Freedom from the American government because, honestly, Chris, I sponsored black golfers overseas. I built hospitals. I built schools for the black children. And we still have a school in South Africa that we have had for 30 years. And before my wife died, two days before, she said to me, please keep that little black school going on forever in perpetuity, which I will. So in our company, it's a small company. 
We've raised over $100 million for people in their lives, for betterment, for giving people a better chance and a place in the sun. So golf has been a great catalyst for me, of which I am so thankful for. Along the same lines of having to deal with things while you were in the midst of playing, in the 1960s, fans were rooting hard for Mr. Palmer, but also actively rooting against you and Mr. Nicholas. People would stomp their feet around the greens when you guys would play signs. People would hold up signs, hit it here, Fat Jack. I read that someone threw a golf ball. You mentioned that just a moment ago, but I, I meant I read that someone was throwing golf balls and other things while you guys were trying to compete and beat Mr. Palmer. What was it like for you in that, in that vein to try to win golf tournaments? Well, it was difficult. It was difficult, but I kept applying my mind in the right direction. I said, well, I'm from a country with apartheid. We deserve it. I try to think myself and be positive. You see, you've got to believe in yourself if you want to be a champion. One of the ingredients is believing in yourself. And so eventually I went to meet the people who were instrumental in demonstrating against me. And I said, why don't you choose a man, choose a black man to come down to South Africa and do a survey. And he came down and he saw the things I was doing and he came back and I never had another day's problem. But life, this is what we got to teach the young people of the world today. They've become so soft compared to our time. The greatest gift bestowed a man or a woman is adversity. You cannot live without adversity. And the other thing, stress. All I hear is people talking about how bad stress is. Hogwash. Stress is a great gift for you. I've lived a stress for 73 years. I'm still going strong. You cannot avoid it. It's part of life. It's how you handle it. And the school systems should be teaching children this. They should be teaching them manners. They should be teaching them faith of some kind, whatever you choose. They should be teaching them how to dress properly. All these things are vitally important for when somebody goes out and searches the world for a job one day. Mr. Player, when you won the Masters in 1978, you became the oldest Masters champion at that time. Was it extra special for you so you could show people that not only were you not done, but players in their 40s could still compete and win? Well, that's always been my ambition you know, to have the most and the longest longevity of any golfer that ever lived. And I, I certainly have right now that I've achieved that without a question. But that was a great thrill. And I said to my wife, on two occasions, I made big errors. I said to my wife, Shh. I said to my wife, when I won the Masters at 42, nobody will ever do that again. Nicholas came out and did it at 46. And I think Tiger did it at 43, if I'm not mistaken. And then when I won the Grand Slam to beat Nicholas at doing it, I said to my wife, nobody will ever do that at 29 again. Nicholas came out at 26 and did it. And Tiger, the greatest sporting achievement in the history of the planet, won the Grand Slam at 24. A lot of people have never even played in a Grand Slam at 24. That, there'll be, that's nothing in the world that compares to that. You were recently quoted in Golf Magazine as saying you'd rank the four majors in this order, the Open Championship, the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, and then the Masters. Why is the Masters last? Why is everybody so surprised at something like that? To be in the top four tournaments in the world, whichever ranking you have, is an honor. 
But I have a reason for saying, and Nicholas, they asked Nicholas the same thing. And Nicholas also ranked, he ranked at US Open, then the British Open, then the PGA and the Masters. I ranked at the British Open, the US Open and the PGA and the Masters. First of all, the British Open is 150 years old. The US Open is about 126. The PGA is well over 100. And the Masters is only 88 or so. And the Masters is a younger of the tournaments. But here's the reason, another reason. You know, every other tournament you can qualify to play in their tournament. There's no qualifying to play in the Masters. It's strictly, you know, on a point system and invitation. It's very different to the others. And so, but the main reason is, you know, I love Augusta. I'm crazy about Augusta. I love the Masters. I'm so grateful that I've won it three times, second three times, in the top 10, 15 times, the most number of cuts in a row with Fred Couples, and the most number of times, 52. I met one of my heroes, President Eisenhower, a man who helped give us freedom, which we must cherish, because freedom is dying around the world rapidly. Freedom in America is even taking a slight tilt away from the great freedom that we know. Our young men and went and fought for freedom. My brother left South Africa at the age of 17 to fight with the Americans and the Allies for freedom. We must never forget that. So now comes the Masters. And the Masters now, with all that is success I've had there. Now this applies to Tiger Woods. It applies to Nick Faldo. It applies to me. It applies to Tom Watson. We cannot go there and play a practice round with my grandchildren. I would love my grandchildren, of which I have 22. I would love some of my grandchildren to play golf, to come with me and tell them about the great memories I've got at playing at that golf course. I can't go and play there. I can do that with all the other majors, but you cannot do that at Augusta. And with all the love and respect that I have for Augusta, this is the one thing that makes me sad. I'm not militant. I'm not controversial about the matter. It just makes me sad that I can't take three of my grandchildren or Tiger Woods or anybody else in that tournament and go and have a practice round there without having to try and find some member who sometimes, it is so difficult to find a member you cannot. We had to try five members to play this year after the Masters. It Even is, it's, it's just actually, it's, uh, they don't make you feel welcome. Can you imagine how I feel? I used to take, Chris, I used to take in the 60s films of Augusta in a big tin foil. And I hired two people out of my own pocket and had them showing the masters all over the small clubs in South Africa. We didn't have television then. The masters has been such an integral part of my life. And I can't go and play a practice round with my grandchildren I don't want to be a member there. I don't want to be a member there at all. But what I would like is twice a year, once a year, not a lot, not to get in the way of the members, once or twice a year to go and play with my friends or my grandchildren to reminisce and show them what took place over the years. And I can't. That's cruel. It's actually cruel. It's not reciprocal. Remember this, Chris, that the Masters tournament, if the players made the Masters tournament, the Arnold Palmers, the Ben Hogan's, the Sam Sneeds, the Byron Nelson, the Jack Nicholas's, the Tiger Woods, the Tom, the Tom Watson's, 
if you never had those dramatic finishes, if it wasn't for the players, Augusta would be another golf course in Georgia. Now, admittedly, the Augusta have run the, the best run tournament in the world. It's a paradise, the beauty, the history. But man, that's cruel when they weren't each other practice round. I, I'm, I'm baffled by that. You're a three-time champion, one of the greatest players to ever live. You can't call Augusta National up and say, hey, I'm going to bring three of my grandchildren. We'll be there on Tuesday. The trouble is, Chris, that nobody in the world knows that. And that's why your question is so remarkable. And another thing, we all wear the green jackets at the tournament. And everybody in the world thinks we're a member of the club. We're not members of that club at all. We're not members of Augusta National. We're a member that week, maybe. Wow. Yeah, that's a big shock to the world, Chris, I'm afraid. Now, let me say this to you, Chris. You know, when I first played there, they never let black people play. I went to Mr. Roberts, who ran the tournament, and I said, Mr. Roberts, please, can't we invite a black golfer? What about Charlie Siffin? I love Charlie Siffin because he went through living hell. And I know what it is to go through living hell, having been from South Africa. And he said, the time will come. That was the answer. And then they had the problem with the ladies. They wouldn't let ladies join the club. And Tiger Woods and I were the only two that were vociferous and said they should. There are half a billion, 500 million women that support the tournament. Why would you want to make a bad friend? A man like Hootie Johnson, he went into the press room with a golf club and said if he put a bayonet on the end, he wouldn't let a woman in the club. And here I'm saying, please, take a few lady members. Now, Chris, here is the thing. The greatest leader that ever lived, Winston Churchill, said change is the price of survival. We changed, and today you have black golfers there, and you have black members, and that's so gratifying. And you have women who are members. Now make another change and let us have a practice round or two a year. Right. Wow. Um, switching gears a little bit, Mr. Player, we recently lost Tom Weiskopf. He had one of the most beautiful swings ever in the game. Talk about your relationship with Tom Weiskopf. Well, Ty Washkoff was a better golfer, basically, than Jack Nicklaus all round, I'm talking about. And he had, a, and he had a, a better swing. But he didn't have that little thing called it. Now, I don't know what it is. I, nobody can define it. They like to think they can, but they can't. And, you know, he'd, he'd sulk a bit. And, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd not try. He'd pick the ball up and leave the tournament. And I love Tom. I really got on so well with him. He was a wonderful golf architect and a wonderful golfer, but never, never reached his potential because his mind was not applied in the right direction. And this is what these young boys, millions of them in the world today, can play so well. But that's not hitting the ball. It's not golf. Being a champion is far more than hitting a ball. And this is what the young guys are going to be careful when they make a decision to be a professional golfer. Very, very, very few are going to make it. Just a couple more before I let you go, Mr. Player. And speaking of about a player that never reached his potential, today golf fans don't know much about what happened prior to 1997 when Tiger came out on the tour. Most people never heard of Bobby Locke. 
who was one of the greatest players who few people ever talk about. He was so good that the PGA Tour didn't want him here. Talk about <laughs> what could have been if Bobby Locke had been allowed to play on the PGA Tour for his entire career. So, Bobby Locke, you know, freedom is a word you can, you should be, you're entitled to say what you believe. But we must never forget that when somebody says something, don't trash him. I always say, I have my version, and you can be against my version and not agree with me, but don't trash me. Let's get together and come to a conclusion with love. You see that with politics today. If you say you like Trump, they want to fight you. If you say you like Biden, they want to fight you. Why? This is America, man. You shouldn't be fighting about these things. Unity is strength, and you need all the unity in the world to beat all these countries that want to hammer you. And now we come to Bobby Locke. Bobby Locke was the greatest putter the world ever saw. Nobody knows that. He won four British Opens. He came over here, and the first year against Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Jimmy DeMarit, and Byron Nelson, all these golfers, he won seven out of the first 11 tournaments. And then they barred him. In those days, <laughs> you know, that was a different deal. His freedom was gone. He was barred. He was barred in. And it's just a tragedy because I played golf with him. He's definitely in the top 20 players that ever lived. But look at the list. Just look at the list when people give their opinions about the greatest players ever. They don't know a damn thing, but they give an opinion. They don't go by the record book. There's only one way you judge a player. And the record book, not how good he looked, not how beautiful his swing was, not this or that, how far he hit the ball. What did he win? That's the thing that counts. And Bobby Locke was one of the 20 best players that ever lived. And hardly anybody in America knows that because when they judge players, his name's not in the top 100, I don't think. One of the other things that not enough people know about, and we talked earlier about the golf ball and the sticks and rocks that you guys used to play with when you were out on tour, but the course conditions are so much better now. Even at Augusta National, it's so much better than it used to be when you guys played. Talk about the impact that had on scoring. Chris, golf today is not even remotely the same as it was. They want to make comparisons between golfers. That's impossible. You cannot make comparisons with golfers of different eras. Bobby Jones might be the best player that ever lived. He played with a walking stick, a ball that went 80 yards less, spike marks on the green, raking the ball, the bunkers with your feet. Even when I played, when the ball buried in the green, you had to play it. I mean, the guys don't believe you when you tell them that. Look at the greens today. You knock down spike marks. We were never allowed to knock down spike marks. The greens today are the equivalent of a snooker table. If you had a man like Bobby Locke putt on these greens today, you would have, the American people wouldn't have believed their eyes if they'd seen what he would have done. The thing is this, it's a completely different game. They're all got their own jets flying first class from tournament to tournament. Millions of dollars. You can be an ordinary player today and make a couple of millions of dollars. Arnold Palmer was the first man to ever win $100,000 in a year, and we were amazed. I was leading money winner with 29 tournaments, stroke average 69 and won 64000 We battled to improve the game and make it better for the young people. That was the great joy of us doing it. And today, when you see the game, how it's advanced, it's marvelous. It's marvelous all over the world. That's why I get so sad 
when I see a war going on between the live and our tour, I just get so sad because I look at our tour and I'm so grateful for what the American tour and the tours of the world. I was president of our PGA in South Africa. Very proud, very proud. So when I see this war going on, I want to cry. Mr. Player, I just want to say one more thing before I let you go. And this is the 10th year in a row that I've been blessed to have you as part of the show just prior to Masters Week. You are the voice in my conscience. I said this to you in in previous years. When I get up from the dinner table and maybe later that night I want to I think about, you know, maybe I'll have a piece of cake or maybe I'll get some ice cream. I hear Gary Player's voice inside my head saying, what are you doing, man? That's poison. <laughs> But close that refrigerator or freezer door Go and go to bed. I hear you tell me all the time what I should not be eating. I hear your voice in my head. I wanted you to know that. All right. Now, I want the young boys that are listening to this show to wake up every day or before they go to bed. I'm not telling you you have to be religious. I am. But I do think they should just say thank you. Most places in the world don't have sheets. They don't have the blankets. They don't have a shower. They don't have a car. They don't have three meals a day. They don't have two parents. They don't have a school. They don't have air conditioning. You want me to go on and on and on? And just, they have it. And they should just say, thank you. Thank you. Gratitude is such an important word. And the children must honor their mother and their father. They must honor their mother and their father. So many children do not honor them, honor their mother and their father. They tell their parents what to do. And, and the schools, we got with schools, we got to go for better education and safety in the schools. Stop giving the rest of the world so much money and put that money into your schools here. Well, Mr. Player, I have plenty of gratitude for you. I can't thank you enough for all you've meant to me, this show, and my life. You've been a major factor, and I can't thank you enough for that. Thank you for the nice compliment. I appreciate it very much. God bless America. Take care, Mr. Player. All the best to you and your family. Bye. That is the great Gary Player, one of the, in my opinion, top five players to ever play the game. Obviously a legend in our game and just a wonderful man and someone who's become very, very important to me. So many great stories and insights from him every year. I cherish the time that I get to spend with him. Ten years in a row now, and every single time, it has been a thrill and so much fun. Again, 87 years young, and I expect to be having these conversations with him long into the future. Huge thank you to his grandson, James Throssell, and to Debbie Longenecker for making this possible. A wonderful man doing great things around the world and a true champion and legend in our game again. So very special to get some time with him. I'm looking forward to doing it again for an 11th time next year. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this very special segment of Next on the T. Thank you so much for tuning in and for all you do to support the show. You can find it available as a podcast everywhere you get your podcasting content. We're out there on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Audio Boom, Player.fm, Good Pods. Do me a favor, download that app. They've been very good to me and making this show one of their recommended podcasts. Most of all, again, my sincere thanks to all of you for continuing to listen and make this show a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.